Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Scott Nations is the president of Nations Indexes, Inc. and a best-selling author. Scott also spent a decade as a contributor to CNBC and regularly appears on air to discuss markets, current economic events, and the outlook for a variety of financial vehicles. Scott founded Nations Indexes in 2014. Nations Indexes is the world's leading independent developer of volatility and option-enhanced indexes and investment vehicles. Scott is the author of A History of the United States in Five Crashes, a general interest history of the five modern stock market crashes, which was published in HarperCollins in June of 2017. Scott is also the author of Options Math for Traders, published by Wiley & Sons in 2012, and which was an Amazon.com bestseller. He is also the author of The Complete Book of Option Spreads and Combinations, published by Wiley & Sons in October 2014. Just a quick show note before we begin. The content of today's podcast is for general information only and should not be regarded as financial or investment advice. All right, Mr. Scott Nations, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It's great to be here. Well, thanks so much for being here. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today to discuss your new book, The Anxious Investor. And really, as both a psychologist and as someone who has personally a strong interest in finance and investing, I thought it was a fascinating read. I really love how you wove a bunch of different examples into the narrative that really nicely illustrated the, at times, utter irrationality that we can engage in both individually and collectively as investors. So many sort of head-slapping moments in there, uh, obviously in retrospect, in in, in all cases. Uh, Scott, I'm really looking forward to exploring all this with you a little bit more. So thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to an interesting conversation. Excellent. Okay, so I'll start off with one of my favorite questions for any author that I have on the show is, why did you write this book? What was speaking to you that you felt you needed to get out into the world around this topic? Uh, I, love the, I love the way you frame that. I think the, the only good books or the only books worth reading are when somebody really has something that they feel compelled to say. And I spent 25 years as a professional option trader on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So I was one of those guys in a bright red polyester jacket jumping up and down. Most people have seen that sort of footage, even though that way of trading is now antiquated. But in that, in that crucible of emotion, every trader comes across every one of the behavioral biases that impact money or finance or just who we are. And, and as I would read a little bit about some of these biases, uh, I, I could envision when I had experienced them. Now, I would read one and I'd say, well, that, well, yeah, a little bit, not so much. And I'd read about another one. I'm like, yeah, that's me. That is me. And over time, I had assembled essentially a list of about 15 of these, 15 biases that were particularly relevant when it comes to finance and investing and money. And I, so I wanted to tell I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to write that book. Uh, I was intrigued because so many of these biases are fascinating, while at the same time they're counterintuitive. And, and so I just I wanted to help investors get to know themselves a little bit better. And again, in the context of these biases. Excellent. Reminds me so much of that other adage in business, right? You can't manage something unless you can measure it. 
And, you know, we're always teaching our clients to get, you know, in order to build self-awareness, they have to have a sense of their psychological landscape. If you don't know the topography, you know, you don't know where to drive the car necessarily to get from point A to point B. And at self-awareness is really what this is about. And so the book, I wrote the book in to be an enjoyable read. So I, I write specifically about three famous bubbles and, and stock market crashes, if you will, and, and weave in discussion of the biases. And, and again, so people are, I hope people will read the book and say, ah, don't fall for that one. But yeah, I fall for that one. Uh, but, but to do it in, in an engaging, fun manner, because we know that nobody really learns well when they're lectured to. So it's certainly not intended to be a lecture. And it's supposed to be a little bit of, of self fun self-examination. Well, I would say staunchly mission accomplished. I, again, the, the examples are great, really riveting in some cases, following the trajectory of some of these stories, like very much page turners. So very well done in that respect. That's great to hear. So Scott, I want to start off with a little bit of a different kind of a question than perhaps you might get thrown your way. But do you have any hunches or maybe even is there any hard data around perhaps the evolutionary basis of our investing behavior or our investing proclivities? Do we know anything about investing behavior, norms, or tendencies in traditional societies versus a prototypically Western society? Are these universal human tendencies more culturally bound? I'd love to get your thoughts on the universality of investing behavior, if we can call it that. Sure. I, some of the biases that I talk about, again, I talk about 15 specific ones. Some of them almost certainly had an evolutionary basis. Now, we've moved past the point where uh, they were useful, uh, such that they were evolved into us. And the good that they did for us 10,000 years ago is now outweighed by, by the bad that they do to us. But they, they almost certainly have some sort of evolutionary basis. And a quick example of one of the biases that almost certainly was evolved into us uh, for good reasons and is now uh, an unfortunate thing is overreaction. Uh, we overreact to, to news. Investors overreact to news. And there's a, a, a significant amount of research. And I talk about some of the research in the book because I don't want to just suggest that these things happen. I want to document and try and quantify. But let's think about 10,000 years ago. Uh, it was almost impossible to overreact to a, to a real physical danger. Uh, the the cost of overreaction was really small. The cost of underreaction may have been existential. And, and so we, we evolved, I believe, to overreact to certain bits of news. Uh, and again, 10,000 years ago, that made sense. When it comes to the stock market now, uh, it, it's, it's, it's counterproductive. And doctor, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is of the biases that I talk about, none of them, not a single one of them helps long-term investing returns. And overreaction is, is one of those that does not help, in fact, hurts long-term investing returns. Um, another quick bias that likely has some sort of evolutionary uh, nexus is overconfidence. Um, at least it, we know it has a. We know that it ha is related to gender. We know it is related to gender. Uh, again, there's there's data in the book, and the book is not really heavy on data. I just point to some specific numbers that can prove out uh, my fact. Uh, but 
Professor Terrence O'Dean at Cal Berkeley has done a lot of research on this, and he has shown, uh, he's documented and quantified the fact that, uh, for example, when it comes to investing, men are more overconfident than women, and single men are more over overconfident than men in general. And so I don't know if that's evolutionary, but there's certainly a gender um, element when it comes to investing. And, and overconfidence is horrible for investing returns. I really like one of the lines that you had in the book that came to mind while you were just describing that w was basically to the effect of, yes, there's all these sort of external forces that an investor needs to be attuned to, but really probably the biggest threat that you need to manage is yourself. And, uh, you know, the market uh, has just had a pretty tough time, uh, but there are lots of examples of where during tough times like this, investors end up being their own worst enemy. So, and that, we see that again and again and again, specifically in February and March of 2009, when the stock market was making its absolute low from the, from the financial crisis. Um, we see from, from investing data that a lot of people just got to the point where they couldn't take it anymore. We'll talk about loss aversion in a second but they just couldn't take it anymore. They just could physically couldn't take, and they sold at the very bottom. They sold at the bottom and they just, they, they really hammered their long-term investing returns. So yeah, you just mentioned loss aversion, which is something I want to follow up on. In the book, it's very clear that loss aversion, at least the way I, that, that I read it, appears to be a particularly important driver of irrational behavior in the context of investing. And there's also some very interesting asymmetries with, with respect to positive outcomes, right? So we tend to be much more fearful or aversive, averse to loss than we are to acquiring things. Can you elaborate on this and talk about how this plays out in the life of an investor? Sure. And when you hear the term loss aversion, you think, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. Everybody should be averse to losses. And I understand that, but the stock market over time is going to go up. It's going to appreciate over time. And if you have a long enough time horizon, that's a great thing. Uh, but occasionally it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall. And we know now uh, through a tremendous amount of research that uh, human beings hate losses more than they like the same game. And they hate that loss about twice as much as they like the same game. And so that's what I really mean by loss aversion. It's not that we don't like losses, it's that we like them. We it's not that we dislike losses, it's that we dislike them so much more than we like the same game. Uh, and, and we might think, okay, that's just a quirk. But the problem is that it causes us to do goofy things when it comes to investing. And as, as an example, it often causes us to sell at the very bottom because we just can't take any more pain. And um, so this, and you, I think you used exactly the right word, this asymmetry, this bias that is an asymmetry really causes problems uh, for long-term investors. Because if you're gonna invest for 20 or 25 years to fund a retirement or potentially some a kid's education, then the, the market will do the hard work for you and you should not worry so much about uh, short-term loss, but it, it really drives people crazy and causes them to do some irrational things. There's one finding in the book that I found really interesting. It's towards the end of the book and it talks about how if you look at sort of losses and gains on the, on the time course of days, 
you see that, you know, it almost looks like a, it's a barely a 50-50 split, if, if I can put it that way. But then as you start to look at longer time horizons, you see that the prospects for gains goes up over time. So you make this point that staying in the market for a long period of time actually is critically important. And if you were investing, just say, on the course of a week, you probably, you know, you probably would stand to lose or, or gain just a little bit. But it's really over time that you realize gains. What is responsible for this phenomenon and how should investors leverage this knowledge of the way that the time course piece works in order to be effective? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it, 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 when I did the research and, and did the math, really, it was, it, it, it was surprising to me that it is essentially a coin flip um, when it comes to the daily returns of the stock market. So the, there are just a, there, uh, a tiny number of days, uh, net days in the stock market where the stock market is higher. So uh, in the course of a single, in the course of a year, uh, the, the stock market will have about 13 more positive days than losing days. In about a 260 trading day year, that's not very many. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just barely better than a coin flip. And, and the losing days tend to be a little bit bigger than the winning days. And so it turns out on a day-to-day, today basis, the stock market seems like it's barely better than a coin flip. But let me, but think about it this way. If you had a coin that you knew was going to come up heads 51% of the time and tails just 49% of the time, uh, which is about what we can say the stock market does, uh, you know, would you really care about making a single bet on that? No, I mean, that's not, it's, it's barely worth your time. But what if you could bet heads a billion times, then you would end up effectively with all the money in the world. And that's kind of the way I look at the stock market. From day to day to day, uh, it barely does better than break even. But by compounding all of those chances, you end up uh, uh, funding, a, funding a retirement, funding educations, making yourself comfortable. Um, and what I wanted to do was I wanted to help readers understand two things. One, that you're going to put up with a little bit of pain, but that two, the odds of success increase exponentially as the time frame increases. So I point out the, the likelihood of the stock market being higher on a daily basis, a weekly, monthly, yearly, and decade basis. And it becomes just compelling is the word I comes to mind for me all the time. It becomes compelling that being in the stock market for a long time is the way to get really outsized returns. Yeah, that was a particularly fascinating part of the book. I was just so struck by it. And it also made me think about the applicability just to day-to-day life, right? Like sort of the power of consistent but incremental good decision-making, maybe in, in spheres outside of financial matters, right? The compounding effect over decades of just making little right decisions consistently. Absolutely. I mean, think about um, the, the power of habit, both good and bad. Uh, how... How much damage can the habit of cigarette smoking do? How much good can the habit of just getting 30 minutes or 60 minutes of exercise five days a week do? All right. So, Scott, I want to go back to some of the biases that you mentioned, you know, the 
there'll be likely a lot of clinicians listening. And in our world, in the world of CBT, we, we talk heavily about cognitive distortions, black and white thinking, jumping to conclusions, overgeneralizing, emotional reasoning. The list goes on. There's many, many of them. Uh, are there a few more of these uh, biases or distortions that you would draw people's attention to with respect to irrational behavior in decision-making in the context of investing? Because I think it's really, really fascinating stuff. One of the first ones I, I would talk about, and it's one of the first ones I mentioned and discuss in the book, uh, and it tends to, to really live uh, almost exclusively, it seems, in, in the financial realm, is the disposition effect. And what is the disposition effect? It's the tendency that investors have to sell winners and hold losers. And the reason I wanted to talk about the, the disposition effect is we hear that and we think that it is perfectly rational. In fact, we dress the disposition effect up. Again, the tendency to sell winners and hold losers. We dress it up as discipline. You know, we think, oh, yes, I'm going to take a winner. And I'm going to pat myself on the back uh, for, for disciplining my greed. I wasn't greedy. Good for me. Pat myself on the back. And we do the same thing on the other side. We refuse to sell our losers. And we, again, pat ourselves on the back because we're dressing it up as discipline. I'm refusing to be impatient. I'm going to be patient. I'm a long-term investor. And so we dress this horrible um, bias up. In, in the best possible terms. The problem is that there's a bunch of research that shows that the disposition effect hurts long-term investment returns. How is that? Um, again, pro Professor Odeen from Cal Berkeley was able to get a, a bunch of brokerage data, and he showed that consistently when people sold a winner, what wherever they put the money underperformed, what they sold. So if they had just if they hadn't sold their winner, they would have been better off. It, it continued to go up, and that uh, what they uh, and it works the other way too. What they held on to, while it was a loser, underperformed the market in general. So again, we dress up this position as this wonderfully disciplined approach to investing. We pat ourselves on the back, and like all the biases, it hurts. It hurts long-term investment returns. And in just in, in, in my thinking, it seems that disposition is particularly relevant in finance. Uh, one final thing I would say about this is, while we say that by selling winners, we're not being greedy, the truth is, the truth is, and this is what really drives the disposition effect, um, we're being monumentally greedy because we get the swirl of chemicals like dopamine in our brain when we sell for a profit. So when we realize that winner, that's when we really get those that swirl of pleasurable chemicals. Having a stock go up isn't enough to get that swirl of chemicals that going. You have to you have to actually sell and take a profit and realize that profit in order to get that swirl of chemicals. So that's what people are being greedy about. They're being greedy to get that great feeling. Just a quick follow-up question. How do we square the circle as far as what we know about loss aversion and then the disposition effect? They seem to sort of almost be contradictory ideas in some sense. That's a, that's a great question. And I, I do address that uh, in the book. And that we, what happens is um, uh, we, 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 we approach the two on kind of a different scale. 
Um, and so, for example, if the market is going down, that's when we end up selling our winners and holding on to our losers. And so, um, you know, the market's going down. We can't take any more pain. And when it comes time to figure out what we're actually going to sell, that's when disposition really kicks in. And we sell our winners rather than our losers. We sell those things that are still above whatever price we got into them at. And so I'll agree that, that, that there is tension between those two. And I discuss it, uh, I discuss it in the book um, and, and try to, well, I, I try to align the two or explain the, where the two uh, are in conflict and how they can both work against us kind of at the same time. Excellent. Thank you for that. And there's one other distortion that I was hoping or, or bias I was hoping you can maybe elaborate on is the sunk cost bias. I know as the owner of a small business, that is something to be very, very attuned to. And I think you had a great line in there, something to the effect of, you know, even if you've wasted the last dollar, it's more important what you do with your next dollar or something to that effect. Can you maybe expand on the sunk cost uh, bias a little bit? Because I think it can be so destructive and impede pivoting when people need to move or evolving when something just simply isn't working anymore. Well, this is a great question, but there are, and there are a bunch of the, bi I call them biases, a bunch of the biases that, that, that are at work here. Uh, one is status quo bias. Uh, we know that we prefer things stay the, stay the way they are, even if a little bit of effort would make us better in the long run. Um, you know, when's the last time you really examined um, uh, here in the United States, your, your employer provided health care plan uh, during open enrollment? Well, most people just can't bring themselves to do the math and look at all the options and all the alternatives and potentially make a change. Same is true with almost any type of insurance, whether it's your home insurance or your car insurance. We just love the status quo bias or we love status quo even when it hurts us. Um, you know, another example um, where, where I think that this comes into play is, um, is the fact that uh, sometimes when we're overwhelmed, uh, we just kind of shut down. Uh, we just decide that we're really not, uh, there's too much information incoming and we just decide, not that, that we love the status quo, but we, we just don't, we're not gonna pay any more attention. Um, and, and, and those are, those are two things that every investor falls for, even though we know that they hurt long-term returns. I think I wanted to point out something else too, that I believe I had read. I think it was maybe the example was Twitter or no, it was, it was some investor who was basically talking about how 80% of the money that he has made as an investor has been off of maybe the third or fourth iteration of an of an initial idea right? Like the initial idea has not worked. They pivoted, they pivot again, they pivot again. And then you end up with like a Twitter or something to that effect. It's and for an entrepreneur. That's, that's very much the case now. Uh, for a stock market, for a stock investor, maybe not so much. I'm, I'm the, we'll talk about this in a little bit. I'm the biggest fan in the world of indexing um, because it, it helps you overcome overconfidence and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, but for an entrepreneur, uh, often being able to admit defeat and move on or pivot is critical. Um, Henry Ford had two different car companies that failed before he found one that was actually successful. So, and, and that's, 
it, all of these biases, it's possible to look at all of these biases and, and find a situation in which they do good for us. Uh, the problem is that all of those instances are anecdotal. Uh, and an example is, um, you know, when, when you're dating somebody, you know, being confident in yourself makes you more attractive. Uh, the same is true if you're just, if you're a salesperson or in business or almost, there are some inst instances where being overly confident is a positive. In general, it's a horrible thing. And in fact, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist and economist, said not that long ago that uh, of all the biases that we fall prey to, overconfidence is the one that he would, he would eliminate if he had a magic wand. That was his term. He said, that's the one I would eliminate if I had a magic wand. He also went on to say, though, that it is so deeply ingrained in who we are that you would end up changing a dozen other things. Um, so uh, entrepreneur being overconfident, uh, you know, that may not be the worst thing in the world, but an, uh, an everyday investor being overconfident, um, it just hurts their returns. Yeah, thanks for making that distinction. That's really important. I want to touch on the indexing strategy that you mentioned a second ago, and that was actually the very next question I was going to pose to you. I guess, you know, from a psychological lens, as well as a financial lens, I'd, I'd be curious to know how this actually plays out financially. What do you think about exchange traded funds or the or ETFs as they're referred to? Uh, basically, this is a strategy where you purchase a fund. It's almost like a mutual fund that tracks an exchange like in Canada, the TSX or the Dow Jones or something to that effect, NASDAQ. Would this not help get around all the forms of bias that you've spoken about? Like basically, it's, it's almost as close as you could get to a set and forget kind of strategy. What, what do you think about this? And what does the data tell us about this as, as far as being effective? I think that indexing or broad-based ETFs are one of the, the great creations in retail finance, period. Full stop. They're, they are one of the greatest things in the world. So let's talk about indexing. That is just tracking and putting putting your money in a very low cost vehicle that just tracks an um, an index, whether it's uh, TSX or the S and P five hundred or some sort of even broader index. Um, let's take a step back. We've talked about overconfidence, but how does overconfidence specifically hurt investment returns? One, uh, humans are overconfident in their ability to pick winning stocks. Uh, they're overconfident in their ability to build. A, a diversified portfolio. They're overconfident in their ability to get out at the right time. Uh, and indexing thwarts uh, those, those tendencies. Um, it doesn't thwart all of them because to the degree that people say, okay, I'm, I'm going to trade this ETF. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to invest in it, but I'm going to trade it back and forth. Then they still fall prey to some of those biases. Um, it, you know, they fall prey to loss aversion. They fall prey to disposition. Um, they fall prey to sensation seeking, which is another bias and one we haven't described. Uh, you know, anybody who who likes roller coasters, scary movies, um, uh, uh, they they understand sensation seeking. Um, you know, roller coasters and scary movies are are pretty benign ways to sense, to seek sensation. Um, there are some others that are less benign. Uh, illicit drugs is one example. And then there's trading in the stock market. And, by, and I don't mean investing. I mean trading back and forth and trying to get in and out. Um, and some people do that using these broad-based ETFs. 
Um, so that so these broad-based ETFs are a great invention, and they can thwart some of the biases. They can't thwart all of them. They can't thwart disposition. They can't thwart sensation-seeking. They can't thwart hurting, hurting the tendency. And this may be one of those that goes back to when it had an evolutionary bias. Humans, when they're confused, tend to look around and simply do what they see other people doing. They're confused and they think, that person seems to have it figured out. I'm just going to follow their lead. I understand that. I think anybody who can think back to when they were in high school and did something stupid only because everybody else was doing it can understand that. Uh, but hurting in the stock market is really counterproductive. And that's also something that um, indexing can ease but not eliminate. Feel free to backtrack if you want to fill in any more blanks before answering this question. But, you know, you make the point in the book about it's very difficult to time the market or or to beat the market. In fact, you just don't want to do any self-inflicted wounds at the, at the very least in a sense, right? How do you explain, you know, the Bridgewaters of the world or these, you know, these hedge funds that occasionally seem to be able to consistently deliver above average returns. And, you know, Ray Dalio has written a number of books. Uh, perhaps you've read them. You know, he really speaks to sort of a methodology and automation and computer-based models, things like that. H how do we explain these kind of outlier phenomenon relative to what we know about the average investor's ability to, quote unquote, beat the market? Sure. Well, it, it's a great question. And, and it's one I welcome. We know that the ad, that investors, investors uh, can't beat the market. And we look at we look at all these actively managed mutual funds, where you have a room full of really smart people who are picking stocks. We're going to buy that one. We're not going to buy this one. We're going to buy the other one. We're not going to buy the fourth one. Um, over time, those funds will trail um, the broad market. So they'll they'll, they'll trail the S and P, and Historically, only about 25% of the funds have beat the S&P in any individual year. So you think, well, that's fine. I'm going to invest in the 25% to beat the market. The problem is that the funds that make up that 25% uh, are different every year. So you can't identify funds that are going to beat the market. So you've asked about some hedge funds. There's, there's a fair amount of research about how hedge funds generate their returns, and it's not by investing. Um, and I don't want to get too geeky here, but most of those uh, hedge funds that you've described are not really investors. Um, many of them are service providers. What do I mean by that? Uh, you know, one of the biggest in Chicago is Citadel. And Citadel is a service provider in that they're a liquidity provider just like I was in the pit 25 years ago. Citadel is always willing, Citadel Securities is always willing to buy from a seller and they're always willing to sell to a buyer. And they expect, just like Walmart, they expect to be paid for that. So they're gonna buy at a wholesale and they're gonna sell at retail. So I would say that they're a service provider. Um, and unfortunately, and we, we look at some of these guys who have, some of these people who've made a tremendous amount of money running hedge funds, the truth is their investors don't always make out very well. And in fact, the broad majority of hedge funds trail the market 
and they specifically after you look at how much risk they take. So there are certainly a lot of funds that have done well over time. Um, the vast majority trail the market. So this might be a somewhat uncomfortable question, but it's actually something I'm interested in across all fields, you know, including psychology. Is investing then a meritocracy in any way, or is it kind of dice rolling? No, I think investing, actual investing, buy and hold investing. Um, well, let me, it, it, it's not a roll of the dice. If you have a reasonably long time horizon and you invest sensibly, you invest, you continue to invest, you keep investing, you don't try and time the market and get out, even when things look a little bit ugly. If you have a time horizon that is at least 10 years long, you will do well. Um, somebody described it this way. And I'm, uh, average returns generated over a, a longer than average time horizon will generate outstanding returns. Um, uh, the, the famous, well, at least in the eighties, he was famous. Peter Lynch was a famous, uh, mutual fund manager who did really well. He said the secret to long-term, the secret to investing is to not get scared out of stocks. That is don't try and time the market. Don't try and bail just because you think things look ugly. Uh, the final way I would approach this is, is to say that, uh, is to remind people what Warren Buffett said. And I mentioned this in the book. And that he said, the stock market is a mechanism for, uh, for transferring wealth from the impatient to the patient. So if you, are an, if you are impatient in the stock market, then you are just going to transfer your wealth to those who are patient. Um, and so, you know, it's not a meritocracy in that you don't have to be any smarter than the average guy to do well in the stock market. As long as you invest, continue to invest, know what the biases are and don't fall for them. See, this is why I'm so interested in finance because yes, it's money, but there's so much psychology in here. I just find it to be absolutely fascinating. And speaking of, Scott, you cover this again quite a bit in the book. Why is it that we can't seem to learn from previous bubbles? Like it just seems so utterly predictable, I guess, obviously with the benefit of hindsight. And yet we seem to walk into them every single time with very predictable results. What's going on here? It, this is a great question. And the, the book I wrote before uh, this most recent one uh, was titled A History of the United States in Five Crashes. So it was literally an examination of five famous stock market bubbles and crashes, really more an examination of the crash or the crashes than anything. Uh, and, and the reason I wrote that book is because I was just astonished at how similar the modern stock market crashes are. The first one I write about is the Panic of 1907. And you're absolutely right. They are just astonishingly similar. So why don't we figure that out? Well, uh, I think some people do. Some people realize that the market is going to get ahead of itself and it's going to, it's not always going to crash. Crashes are actually relatively rare, but there are going to be points where it's really ugly. And they're like, that's fine. I know it's going to be ugly every once in a while, but the excess, get, the excess return I get from investing in the stock market is going to compensate me for those days when it's really ugly. Um, so I think that there are a, a fair number of people who look at it that way. Unfortunately, there are also people who may have read about or lived through some of these crashes and they convince themselves it's different this time. Those are probably the most 
dangerous, expensive words in America in finance. In finance, it's different this time. So, you know, we look at what happened in with the housing bubble, and that was really not that different than what was happening in 1987. Um, but everybody had convinced themselves that we were so much smarter, we were so much more sophisticated, we were able to figure it out. Um, Doctor, you know better than I do. We're human. And the things that make us human don't really change that much. And, um, and so because we're human, we sometimes fail to recognize that it's never different. Um, uh, it, it's always the same. And the same sort of biases uh, that caused problems in 1907 and 1929 and 1987 and 2008 um, are going are to fall prey to those again. So just as a follow-up question to you around that, what kind of mindset or self-awareness or self-editing do you think that it takes to see a disaster coming? Like say, say for instance, the subprime mortgage crisis. Why were such a small number of people able to see this coming and take advantage of it when so many other people were running in the wrong direction? Why is this such a rare asset? Yeah, that's, well, that's a great question. And you know, we have heard uh, some just fantastic stories of people who, who saw it coming and uh, financial people who saw it coming and made just boatloads of money by betting against housing. And so it's easy for us to look at some of those people and, and think, well, see, it is, some of these people haven't figured out. Let me point out, though, that those people have not been able to replicate their success. Uh, there's, of those stories of the people who made a bazillion dollars in the, in the crash of the housing market, uh, many, none of them have been able to replicate that success. So for one brief moment, they were the 25% of fund managers who were beating the market. And then the rest of the time, they go back to being the 75% that can't beat the market. So, um, so I, I would, and, and this is actually, this is, let's talk about a different bias when I haven't discussed yet in this regard, availability. So we overestimate the likelihood of something if it's easy for us to call to mind. So, and one of the things I, I write about in the book is, uh, you know, so many people are afraid of, of flying on an airplane, on a commercial airplane, because when there's a horrible accident, it is horrible and a bunch of people die. Those are available to memory. But there was a huge swath of the last decade where nobody died in a commercial airline accident, at least in the United States. But every year, tens of thousands of people die in automobile accidents. So availability plays tricks on us. We think that the things that are easy to recall are more likely to happen. So it's easy to recall the stories of people who made billions of dollars when it seemed like our financial system was melting down uh, in, during the housing crisis. Similarly, similarly, we, it is so easy for investors to, well, I lived through 1987. Um, everybody's heard of 1929. A lot of people have heard of the panic of 1907. Uh, nearly all of your listeners will have lived through what happened in, in 2008 and 2009. Uh, most people who are even vaguely interested in finance can, can explain what happened in 1929 uh, because it's available to memory. Uh, 
I would bet almost none of them. I would bet almost none of them can tell you what happened in, say, 1958. My point is that investing for what is normal is makes a whole lot more sense than investing for whatever is available to your memory, because the normal will compound. 1929 will come along and really be ugly. 1987 will come along and be really ugly, but that's not the way to invest. The way to invest, and I say this in the book, is to invest for what is normal. I have a bit of a flyer question for you here. We'll see where this goes, but why is it that, you know, me as a psychologist, I can't pick up, say, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky or you know, an ex- economics professor can't pick that up and then leverage the principles to become a millionaire or billionaire investor. Why is it so difficult to translate what we know to be hard science into returns, let's say? So, Because it seems like we understand things very well at the level of the individual, but it becomes too chaotic or too complicated to translate that into the macro sphere. If I had that right, I'd be interested in knowing why that is or if there's any thoughts around why that is? Why is it so difficult to predict or get it right year after year or to, or to be consistent in, in one's read? I, I think that's a great question. And it's one that, it's, it's one that I, I won't say I struggle with it, but I do think about it. Um, it's because it is, again, we're human and we all have, we have biases and weaknesses and we give into all of them to some degree. Um, and that's why, you know, I said earlier, Average returns over uh, an extended period of time uh, can generate just really wonderful wealth. It's just so difficult to to stay in the market and not fall prey to the biases over an extended amount of time. Um, you know, previously you asked, you know, how can we kind of fool ourselves into not falling for some of the biases? One suggestion I make in the book is that. Before you make an investment, before you make an investing decision, whether it's to sell something or buy something or whatever it is, wait 30 days, wait a month before you actually execute the trade. If you're a long-term investor, 20 or 25-year time horizon, then the 30 days is going to be absolutely unimportant, completely inconsequential. On the other hand, if you wait the 30 days and kind of pay attention to what you're thinking, then you will come to recognize whether there's a bias at work, whether it's loss aversion or disposition or sensation seeking. If you just can't, if you're like, I can't wait 30 days, then maybe something else other than just a uh, rational analysis of profit loss or risk and return is at work. I love that. And it reminds me of one of my favorite interventions with clients. It's basically the, if it's a good idea now, it will be a good idea in 30 days sort of strategy. Right. And if it's a bad idea, then maybe in 30 days, you'll realize it's a bad idea. Exactly. Exactly. I just want to pick up on this behavior modification piece because, again, as psychologists, that's something that we're really attuned to. So, again, in our world, behavior modification is a really powerful way of moderating our mood. And basically, if you act as though a worry is true, you will strengthen that fear or worry. And I'd imagine there's, there's some very problematic behaviors in the context of investing that people could get into, such as Googling incessantly or checking their portfolio on a minute or hourly basis. What are some behaviors that you think are counterproductive from the lens of not becoming an anxious investor or managing one's anxiety as an investor? Right. It is so easy to, to 
see what the stock market is doing on any particular day and kind of get fixated on that. Um, it's so easy now to you know, log into your, your investment account, your brokerage account, and see the number. And I think it's great that people are connected to their investments and they're aware of what's going on, but that sort of immediacy is, is almost certainly counterproductive, which is one reason I say, wait 30 days. Um, I, the goal of the book was to have people become just a little bit more introspect, introspective when they do log into their brokerage account and not feel the need to do something just because they're logged in. Again, that's, that's part of sensation seeking. Um, so one of the biases I talk about is called myop myopic loss aversion. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting bias. Um, and it's easy for humans to, to not realize that we're falling prey to it. But as an example, um, well, really the definition of it is that every investor, regardless of their investing returns, whether it's 20 years, 25 years, or even longer, tends to manage their portfolio as if they're going to use the money in about 12 months. So, and that, so they, they'll, they'll buy and sell, or they'll pick a, a set of vehicles or stocks or whatever, as if they're going to use the money in about 12 months, even if they're not going to use it again for 20 or 25 years. So how can we modify our own behavior to, to, to thwart that. Again, a cool, like the 30-day cooling off period is one way to do it. Uh, another is to not necessarily look at the market or your brokerage account every day. You know, there's a, there's a story that is not uncommon, and it's like people, I, I've heard a number of people say since I wrote the book, the best returns I've ever had in the stock market were about stuff I forgot I owned. So somebody buys something 20 years ago, they buy 100 shares of something 20 years ago, and they forget about it. And then they look at their account and they're like, oh my God, look at how much money I've made on that. Well, partly you made that money because you forgot you, you owned it and you couldn't fool yourself into, into selling it. Um, so th those are the ways that I would say modify your behavior. Um, and, and again, when you do sign into your brokerage account, just think about the feelings that, are that you have and what is going on. Uh, briefly, one of the biases, it's not really a bias so much, but one of the things that I talk about in the book is affect, that is mood. And the fact that um, our, our mood uh, changes, the, changes our, our, our mentality about risk-taking. And so if you sign in to your brokerage account when you're in a good mood, you are more likely to take additional risk. And if you sign in after when you're in a bad mood, you are likely to take less risk. And, and just so just being self-aware uh, when, when it comes time for you to make financial decisions and get, it, and get in, into as neutral a mindset as possible will help your long-term investing returns. I can tell you as a clinician that for those of us who work with bipolar disorder, which of course these clients are afflicted both by experiences of, of quite profound depression, but then also periods of mania where they're 
an inflated sense of self, grandiosity, very positive. I mean, one of the things we put in place right away, as soon as you feel symptoms of mania coming on, you relinquish your credit cards to a loved one, uh, no major financial decisions. Like we, we have to put all these stop gaps in place because it's the very exaggerated and pathological version of what you're describing that can happen to any of us. Yeah, it's it, uh, even for people who, who do not have, uh, to do not experience bipolar disorder, uh, mood or affect, um, it can be profoundly impactful. Um, it, you know, and again, this is one of these wonderful things that can be researched. So there's a fair amount of research. Uh, college kids were given a story um, about uh, an unfortunate person, personal um, experience. It was either a hypothetical story about a college uh, classmate dying of leukemia or a story about somebody dying from um, a lightning strike. And then just a few minutes later, uh, they will be given a, a essentially a test or a, a task which measures risk-taking. And the ones that have been primed with some sort of sad story are just less willing to take risk, even though the task has nothing to do with leukemia or lightning strikes. It's just our mood has been changed and we're, we're less willing to take risk. And it works the, in the other direction as well. Uh, and it's um, we, we don't make really good financial decisions in that situation. So I can see how you would also want to take somebody's ability to log into their brokerage account if they're experiencing an episode of mania. Absolutely. Can end up doing a lot of damage, which will only then precipitate an even more profound episode of depression. Very, very, very challenging circumstances. And that's obviously to to a less uh, significant degree, but some investors do fall prey to regret, and and we are, and so that that will make them kind of give up on investing, uh, which is obviously the you know that's that may be the worst thing you can do, um, and, and so investors they some of them will get lost in sensation seeking, and they'll trade too much, and some of the other ones. Will, will give way to regret, uh, and they don't they don't invest enough. Um, you know, both are bad. Well, I have two follow up questions around that, but I'll of course have to ask them in sequence. How has uh, artificial intelligence or AI driven investing changed the psychological landscape for the inve investor? Has it made things better? Has it made it worse? Are there unintended consequences to this emerging uh, that we need to be attuned to? I, for the you know, this is a really intriguing question uh, and one I've not gotten before. Uh, to the degree that you are a long-term investor, um, this sort of thing should have very little impact on your your returns or your approach. Now there are there are now what are there are now some firms that will will pick um, vehicles using this sort of algorithm. Some of them are called robo advisors. In other words. Um, essentially an algorithm or AI will pick which vehicles you are going to be invested in. But the goal is always diversification, long-term return, um, you know, uh, reduced volatility consistent with your goals. Um, so that can help a little bit. In the very short term, um, some of the high-frequency trading that we know about that is driven by this sort of thing, um, AI or predictive analytics, that 
to the degree that that uh, reduces the cost to a, to an investor, that's generally a good thing. In other words, it increases liquidity and reduces costs. Um, it on on a long enough time horizon, the impact should be small, but it does make it a little bit less expensive to trade. The problem is people use that as an excuse to trade more. Um, you know, in the 1960s, uh, commissions were incredibly expensive and spreads uh, were very wide and it was really expensive to trade. Uh, now it's it's less expensive to trade, but that doesn't mean you should be trading more often. Because of the prevalence of AI-driven investing going on in the background, is the market today the same market as the 60s or 70s? Have any, any of the underlying dynamics changed? Like, Would the same strategy of diversification work today in an AI-driven investment environment, or have things changed fundamentally? No, that's the, it's, it's, not the, it's not different this time. It's the same this time, particularly for the long-term investors. So uh, that while there's a lot more going on day to day, it seems like um, it should have almost no impact on the long-term investor. So it's kind of interesting to watch, uh, but uh, the, what matters, what matters, the general themes, the general concepts that will work are, uh, are the same now as they were in the 60s, as they were in the 20s as they have always been. Is there any data at all that the cycles are speeding up in some sense? Because again, you've got computers sort of rifling through many, more, many, many more transactions, or that certainly they can, there's that capacity. Is there any evidence for that? Well, yeah, I mean, um, news gets assimilated by the market um, much faster than it ever did before. Uh, and I, I mentioned the book I wrote about stock market crashes. Interest, something interesting I found, well, one of the reasons I wrote that book is every crash has some sort of catalyst, and often the catalyst has nothing to do with the stock market. Um, uh, the, the time between the catalyst and the crash is collapsing. So, uh, for example, the, the catalyst for the 1907, the panic of 1907, was the San Francisco earthquake. Um, but the time from the catalyst to the crash was a year in that case. In 1929, it was a month. In 1987, it was a weekend. In 2010, the flash crash, it was a day. And so uh, the time between the catalyst and the crash is collapsing. That is certainly the case. And that has to do with the fact that information and news is just assimilated so much more quickly than it ever was before. And my second follow-up question is, and again, appreciating there's probably no right answer here, but I'd love to get your opinion or at least help people to think through their own decision around this. Do you think that people should be managing their own money or is that something that should be, is best outsourced to a somewhat arm's length professional? Uh, does, does the average retail investor actually stand a chance of being able to be successful given what we know about the psychology of investing, all that you've laid out in the book? I, that's a great question. I say in the book, if you can't bring yourself to do these things, that is pay attention to the biases, invest, continue to invest, keep investing, then maybe it's time to, to hire uh, a professional. Um, I, I believe that is the case. Um, it, to the degree that a professional will help you, will just check your biases. Um, so there's, I, I'll, so I'll say two things. There is no reason that a disciplined individual 
cannot be successful, cannot be very successful as a long-term investor. You absolutely can. It is also possible for a financial professional to help you be a successful long-term investor. Um, Again, I think what they should do is encourage you to invest, continue to invest. Don't stop investing. Don't try to get out at the bottom or don't let you get out at the bottom. Uh, and so they should be, we'll call it your conscience. Maybe there's your conscience. Uh, in that regard, a professional might be uh, worth the money. I'm not, there, there's no one size fits all here. Uh, what works for you? And if you read the book and you see yourself in some of the biases, then I guess uh, the book has accomplished what I wanted it to. Scott, beyond their potential utility as financial tools, commodities, securities, however they're being framed these days, what do you think about cryptocurrency, NFTs from a psychological perspective? Any red flags here given what you have described and outlined in the book? Well, let's let's focus purely on the psychological aspect of cryptocurrencies and, and NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, because, I, again, it... It's not different this time. It's always the same. And one of the things I write about in the book is, and one of the, it was really some of the fascinating, most fascinating stuff I came up with for the book um, revolved around what some people did in the internet bubble. So, you know, 1999-ish. Um, and, and this comes from some research by, by two really fascinating guys, Richard Taffler and David Tuckett. And Professor Tuckett was great help with this, that they call fantastic objects. And again, this is the context of the internet bubble in 1999. And what they say, and they have research that that describes this, is investors believed that the, the, the businesses, the internet, new internet businesses or the products uh, were really a manifestation of like, fantastic, interesting, iconoclastic people. Think Steve Jobs. People wanted to be Steve Jobs. They wanted to know him. They wanted to be his friend. They thought he was just this fascinating guy. And I, I imagine he was. But that was an excuse for them to own the stock in whatever business he ran, whether it was Apple or Next or whatever. So Apple became kind of this fantastic object. And people were transported by the relationship they thought they had with Steve Jobs and Apple because they owned Apple stock. Uh, Same thing happened to a lesser degree uh, with some of the other founders of businesses back in the late 1990s. Uh, Steve Case, who we've forgotten, founded AOL, and he was another example of that. Uh, So again, we, we, we feel like we're transported, that whatever makes these people special will kind of rub off on us uh, if we use their product or own their stock. And I think that this is kind of happening now with crypto because it's, it's fascinating. Cryptocurrencies, fascinating technology that, you know, nobody had ever thought about before. Uh, but are, are you owning, do you buy cryptocurrencies uh, for the sensation seeking because you're hoping that it's going to go up a thousand times, um, a thousand fold, or, or, you know, that's not good. Or do you buy it because you just think that the technology is fascinating and the people who are behind the cryptocurrency exchanges or the coins themselves or the, the currencies themselves 
are really fascinating people. I, to the degree that that is your motivation, uh, I think it's a horrible motivation. I think it's a horrible rationale for being a speculator in any cryptocurrency. And I think that that's going, I think that that is certainly going on right now. People want to be part of a movement. They don't want to just be investors. They want to be part of a larger movement. Um, they want their investing to have some meaning. And to, you know, the, the, the meaning that your investing should have is that you're providing for your retirement and your family, maybe your kids' educations. It shouldn't be, should not be to, to transport you to some, I don't know, daydream. As a follow-up question, you cover the internet, the early days of the of the uh, internet boom, and talk about how you know you put .dot com behind anything, and all of a sudden the value would you know accrue precipitously overnight. Ultimately, those people were wrong about the specifics, but the broad trend, of course, is that the internet was the you know the a, a real paradigm shift, and it was going to change the world. And I do wonder about the same thing with Web three or cryptocurrency, blockchain, all that kind of stuff. Maybe the specifics are being are are not correct at this particular moment, but do you think there's any possibility that that's the way that things are going? Uh, decentralized uh, models moving away from fiat currency, things like that. It's undeniable that the internet changed the world. Uh, I think it it's it was impossible back then to know who was going to to win. It was impossible to know who the winners were going to be. And so, look at some of the names that. Um, had multi-billion dollar market caps. Um, that is, the company was worth billions and billions of dollars. Pets.com is one example. Uh, maybe the quintessential example. Uh, and there are just, there are a, this huge number of companies that were started, went public, and, and then failed miserably. And I write about them in the book. So just because something is going to change the world actually doesn't mean it's a great investment. Let's take a bigger step back. Uh, you know, railroads in the 1800s, particularly the early 1800s, may have changed society even more than the internet did. Uh, prior to railroads, uh, vast majority of Americans never got more than, say, 20 miles from where they were born and raised. Railroads changed that completely. Uh, now it was how quick, uh, where can you go and how quickly can you get there? Railroads were a horrible investment. Uh, they were overbuilt. Uh, too much investment was put into them. Um, uh, many of them failed. Uh, the few that succeeded uh, took a long time to see success. In many ways, that is the internet. Too many internet companies were started and went public. Many of them failed. Uh, if you invested in a broad swath of internet stocks, uh, you probably did worse than the overall market. Uh, even though you might have had, uh, you know, Apple or Microsoft or AOL, uh, you also had a bunch of, and I mean a bunch of, also rants. So let's let's bring it back to crypto. Crypto is again fascinating technology. Um. Should it be the basis for an asset? I'm not certain. Maybe it should be the, the basis for uh, transactions and not, you know, not a, not a picture of a rock or a picture of a, of a monkey uh, like NFTs are. 
Um, so, uh, uh, again, I guess the only thing I would say is that uh, paradigm shift, uh, big change in society is a wonderful thing. Uh, it's not easy to invest in those situations. Scott, just as a final question, knowing all that you know about historical trends, realities of the market, et cetera, and I appreciate this might be a bit of an unfair question because it's basically, can you sum up the book, but perhaps there's something you want to distill out very specifically. If you could design the perfect investing mindset, what would that look like from your perspective? It would be autopilot. It would be autopilot. Invest, keep investing, don't stop investing, revisit infrequently, uh, revisit your your portfolio just often enough to do what needs to be done. That is, make certain that you remain diversified and harvest any tax losses that you can, uh, but uh, revisit your portfolio relatively infrequently. So invest, continue to invest, don't stop investing. Realize that time is on your side, that the stock market and time will do almost all of the heavy lifting if you'll just kind of meet it halfway. And when it comes time for you to think about your investments, uh, think about the biases and think about your frame of mind and why you're making some of these decisions in the moment. And if you do all those things, um, then, uh, then you will have success. Let's remember investing is, investing is noble. You're delaying gratification now uh, in the expectation, the hope that you're going to have uh, a better future. And I think that's actually a noble thing uh, that you're going to make things better for yourself and your family, and your kids. Um, but uh, you do have to meet the stock market halfway. Uh, and the way to do that is, is to kind of put it on autopilot. Invest, continue to invest, and think about the biases. All right, Scott, the book is The Anxious Investor. If people want to learn more, where can they go? Well, they can buy the book. The book is available anywhere. They can also follow me on Twitter, at Scott Nations, although I talk about a number of market things, including some things more related to the, to the rest of the business. But they can also uh, go to the website, scottnations.com. And I talk about the books and I talk about some of the, the things that uh, apply when it comes to everyday investors. Excellent. Well, thanks for such a great and interesting book. I highly, highly recommend it. And thanks so much for your time today and joining me for a little bit to take a walk through some of these concepts. It's been really, really fun. Thanks so much, doctor. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.